I'm very pleased that you find joy with the piano. This and carpentry are, in my opinion, for your age, the best pursuits, better even than school, because those are things which fit a young person such as you very well. Mainly play the things on the piano which please you, even if the teacher does not assign those. That is the way to learn the most, that when you are doing something with such enjoyment that you don't notice that the time passes. I am sometimes so wrapped up in my work that I forget about the noon meal. Albert Einstein Hello and welcome to the podcast, Education in Dystopia. I am Mr. Arizona and I'm here today with Mr. Worldwide, who will join me in a conversation after a lengthy intro today, which I believe is well warranted on the topic of Montessori education. In this podcast so far and going forward, we've been talking about some grim things, a lot of what's wrong with school and education and society as we know it, which I don't really see a problem talking about. It's good to be honest about the world we live in. That kind of talk is not going away here, but certainly we will make room sometimes for the good stuff, the positivity and the solutions, the what are the alternatives and what could we do instead themed episodes. Because as we've also mentioned previously, the problem is not so much that we don't know what is good or better than this, or what we could do instead of the bad stuff we're talking about. But standing in the way of things being different is not so much that we need so many new and different ideas. Those already exist in plenty. And we're going to explore some of that today. The problem is more that the wrong people have power and are making the major decisions for the rest of us with little care or concern for our best interests. I've had an interest in Montessori education, the philosophy and practice, and I was thinking about finding someone to interview about it, whether it was a Montessori teacher or someone who had been through Montessori schools as a student themselves. It was only on a recent episode that Mr. Worldwide mentioned he taught in a Montessori school for a while, and also that he went through Montessori school as a student for several years, so I didn't have to try as hard as I thought to find someone to interview. Although I would certainly be open to interviewing some more people on Montessori in the future. So on this episode, we're going to chat with Mr. Worldwide about his experience as a teacher and student in Montessori schools. We're going to discuss some of the concepts within the philosophy and practice of Montessori education, how it differs from traditional or conventional schooling, how it might be integrated more into public education, what, if anything, is not good about the Montessori philosophy, or could be improved within the typical Montessori approach, and more questions like this. So let's start with a summary of concept, and then we'll move on to the conversation. From the Wikipedia entry on Montessori education, the Montessori method of education was developed by Italian physician Maria Montessori. Emphasizing independence, it views children as naturally eager for knowledge and capable of initiating learning in a sufficiently supportive and well-prepared learning environment. It discourages some conventional measures of achievement, such as grades and tests. Montessori developed her theories in the early 1900s through scientific experimentation with her students. The method has since been used in many parts of the world in public and private schools alike. A range of practices exist under the name Montessori, which is not trademarked in the U.S. Popular elements include mixed-age classrooms, student freedom, including their choices of activity, long blocks of uninterrupted work time, and specially trained teachers. Scientific studies regarding the Montessori method are mostly positive, with a 2017 review stating that broad evidence exists for its efficacy. And I'd like to look more at that uh, evidence in the future, but maybe not today. And here's another uh, last summary of concept straight from the American Montessori Society. What is Montessori education? For more than a century now, the child-focused approach that Dr. Maria Montessori, an Italian physician, developed for educating children has been transforming schools around the globe. 
As soon as you enter a classroom, you know that something different is afoot. Montessori classrooms are immediately recognizable. You will see children working independently and in groups, often with specially designed learning materials, deeply engaged in their work, and respectful of themselves and their surroundings. The Montessori method fosters rigorous, self-motivated growth for children and adolescents in all areas of their development, cognitive, emotional, social, and physical. And then also if you click around on that website, I just want to read one more thing. Um, the five core components of Montessori education. Montessori educators view children as naturally eager and capable of initiating and pursuing learning guided by their own interests. To support children as they learn, Montessori schools provide thoughtfully prepared, age-appropriate environments that nurture children's cognitive, social, emotional, and physical development. Regardless of the type of Montessori school, for example, independent, private, charter, or public, secular, or faith-based, the American Montessori Society recognizes five components as critical to high-fidelity implementation of the Montessori method. 1. Trained Montessori Teachers Properly credentialed Montessori teacher has the skills and expertise to implement high-fidelity Montessori. 2. The multi-age classroom. Classes with three-year age spans facilitate mentorship among the students and encourage leadership development. 3. Using Montessori materials. A hallmark of Montessori is specially designed materials that provide a hands-on approach to learning. 4. Child-directed work. Students are given agency to self-select work, leading to intrinsic motivation and sustained attention. 5. Uninterrupted work periods. An extended period of free choice enables students to work at their own pace and without interruption. So with that, I would like to hear from Mr. Worldwide as much as he has to say today about being a teacher and a student in the Montessori-type schools. So, Mr. Worldwide, I know that's a lot. Where do you want to start? So, I attended, I attended a Montessori school from third through sixth grade. Uh, and this was a school that I actually later ended up teaching at in what they call the lower elementary classroom, which is uh, first, second, and third grade combined. Uh, following that, I took a uh, teacher assistant position at, so that school was private. I later took a teacher assistant position at a public Montessori magnet school. So I've had, uh, you know, I've experienced it as a student, as a teacher in a private setting where we had maybe a little bit more control and freedom to, um, you know, articulate for ourselves what it meant to, uh, you know, implement these methods. And then this kind of interesting dynamic of trying to do Montessori, but also needing to check a lot of boxes for the school district. As a student, you know, I, uh, it's interesting looking back and try, like now that I've been a teacher for a long time and trying to imagine, okay, what kind of student was I? Uh, because of course, when you're a kid and you're going through it, you, it's, um, it's hard for you to compare your own experience to anybody else's. But I think that one of the best things that I got out of being in a Montessori school was, I think that if I had gone to a traditional public school, uh, I, I probably would have, um, I don't know if I would have thought that I was stupid, but I think that I, I probably would have had some self-confidence issues in that I really struggled with math uh, throughout most of my formal education. Uh, I did, it didn't really start to click with me, and ironically, until I started to teach it to children. But I think that in that environment, there was very much this emphasis of, I didn't feel uh, 
compared to other students. You know, I know there were kids who had an easier time with math than I did, but we really got this message reinforced that people are moving through this stuff at their own pace, uh, you know, whereas you may struggle with this, uh, something else might come really easily to you. Um, and because, you know, and that's a thing that you hear, I think a lot of public school teachers pay lip service to, but when you have grades in the mix, we always know that that's a little bit of a lie. You know, you, you can't really reconcile those two positions that people have different abilities and don't compare yourself to other students if the system itself is formally comparing you with a letter grade to other students. Yeah, you said you might have developed some self-confidence issues because of some struggling with some certain subject or topic or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think that affects all of us who go through conventional type schooling because everyone struggles at something or another. And like you said, the system is like set up to, well, grades are one way it's done, but the system is competitive in general and the system ranks you according to like standards and whatnot. So it's like everyone's going to have something that they're not good at Mm -hmm. or be told that, you know, like you're not as good as that person or whatever. And we're told that like repeatedly, it's like beat into us. So I think the system in general of conventional schooling develops self-confidence issues whether we realize it or not yeah Um, definitely and you said yeah the comparison to other students part is like a feature of the conventional schooling system and also yeah you're using the term public right now but i also want to say like it's not just public schools i prefer to say conventional or traditional education yeah that's probably a better way to think about it because I got a lot of that actually after I went to that Montessori school, I went to a Catholic school for middle school, which is a, a whole different episode and uh, probably was a mistake. Uh, but yeah, they they certainly, there was a lot of ranking and comparison uh, and I think I did start to internalize. So like, I, I'm glad that I had that like initial period of being built up and allowing my confidence to develop and developing some sort of self-concept that wasn't based on these grades that were being assigned to me. Uh, But I still struggled with math throughout middle school. uh, And I think that kind of like, I know that took a toll on me at the time. I mean, I went to private school for some time. And do you think I was not compared to other students and (laughs) graded and ranked and forced to be competitive all the time? And people telling me, I'm good at this, but not good at this. Um, You Mm -hmm. can do this, but not this. And So, yeah, it's part of the system of conventional or traditional education. Uh, It it knows no bound of, you know, public school or private school. But in the Montessori classroom, I would say, and tell me if you agree, it's not that this is absent of comparison and competition and ranking, but... It's much. It's not a feature, first of all, as much, and it happens less often. Yeah, it's something that we are always consciously trying to move away from. Uh, and there are, you know, the school is not an island unto itself. There's always cultural forces that are trying to bring that back. Uh, you know, I've certainly dealt with parents who I've, I've had parents leave the school because they didn't think that we were encouraging that we didn't we weren't making their kid competitive enough. I, I've literally had parents say that to me. Um, but it's, uh, you know, we're we're always trying to uh, notice those things and move away from them. Yeah, it's like you deliberately in a Montessori approach, recognize competition 
and comparison and like having everyone on the same track and on task all the time as we've talked about is like mm-hmm. you deliberately understand through Montessori perspective that that's not usually desirable and yeah. you try to like make the classroom on purpose into a different thing it doesn't mean it always is successful especially because like like you said it's not an island and it's situated and this is something i want to talk about specifically it's situated within you know our broader society and economy economic system i will say just briefly like it's not that um it's not that we never want students to compare themselves to each other uh like that that can be fine you know like one example that i think of is like if you are a first grader and you're doing an art project and you see a third grader who's working on the same art project and they're doing it at a much higher level than you are because they're older they have more fine motor coordination maybe they've done this project a couple of times before uh then you you may compare what you have to what they're doing and that's not necessarily bad because sometimes that can uh, that can be inspiring when it's moved away from this idea of competition of everybody's trying to outdo each other and more just noticing like whoa that's really cool i want to learn how to do that too yeah it's like a different kind of comparison there's a sort of comparison that's like a part of the structure of the conventional school system that's like okay we're on first grade um that one kid in the class is doing art at a higher level than all the rest of you, that means all the rest of you are bad unless you do the same thing as that person. Or just that he's better than you. (laughs) Yeah, better than you in general, or or art. And both of those things aren't necessarily true, right? Mm -hmm. And I found it interesting you talked about, like, you struggled at math. And this is like a common sort of complaint or phrase, not just, well, struggling at math, yes, in schools, but also just like, being not good at a certain subject or topic or whatever. And I feel like in the Montessori model, that's less of a thing because let's say you struggle at math. Well, first, what does it mean to struggle at math? Does it mean like you don't do well on a test or you don't like understand the homework? That's what it might mean in a conventional school setting. Mm -hmm. Um, In a Montessori classroom, it's like, okay, I'm slower at getting this certain concepts like in our math curriculum. But in the Montessori education, right, first of all, you're told, well, you don't necessarily have to be like at the same like spot as other people. You don't have to understand the same things in the same way at the same time. Right. That's not necessarily making you worse or better. Yeah. The Montessori classroom will give you more like time and space to like rectify what may be your weaknesses. And like maybe you aren't bad at math. Maybe you go on to be a mathematician. Right. But it's like. You got a slow start or you understood it in a different way at the time or whatever. And in conventional schooling, that means, you know, to the student, you're bad at math, right? And like that discourages people and forms like a vicious cycle of like, I'm bad at math, so I just be bad at math forever, right? Yeah. One of the things that I think is really nice about the uh, three-year classroom model where you have the same kids in one classroom and they're in that classroom from uh, first through third grade or uh, from uh, preschool through kindergarten or from fourth grade to sixth grade is that they have... um, There's so much in uh, conventional schooling that is based on these year-to-year benchmarks of like, these are the concepts that you need to understand by the end of first grade, and we'll know the extent to which you understood them based on the grades that you got on the assessments that we were giving you. And with Montessori, it's more like uh, you just, because you have three years, 
there's it's not that we totally abandon that idea of like well we want students to like have their times tables memorized uh by the you know by the middle of second grade um but if somebody doesn't have them memorized by the middle of second grade well you know there's they have a whole another like year and a half uh, in our classroom that we can work with that student on that. So it, it feels like there's a lot less pressure because of that. Um, and I, you know, I can think of one student in particular who came to us in second grade um, really, uh, no, I guess it was, he, he came midway through first grade. He was really struggling with reading, struggled with reading all through second grade, uh, but it really started to click with him midway through third and so he entered that classroom having a lot of anxiety and self-conscious um, self-consciousness around the idea of reading and he left a confident reader and i don't think it would have been the same experience for him if he had gone through three grades each time showing up and the teacher being like oh you can't do any of the materials that we have prepared because they're based on the assumption that you know how you know that you already met those benchmarks uh to like pass to the next grade i think that's generally a better idea to like if we're gonna make students do certain things and learn certain things and demonstrate it like give them a broader amount of time to do it instead of like coming up with this huge list of things and being like well in the next four months like for some reason you all have to do like this certain specific stuff first of all i would call into question that huge list of certain specific stuff um as opposed to like you know helping people learn to read for example um which is much broader and more subjective like in a good way because people read in different ways and people have different needs and wants if we're gonna like help people learn to read for example i like that more as an example because like something more specific like wh okay what if someone doesn't learn their times tables by third grade like what if like is that such a problem I, I don't think it's that big of a deal like it can always be learned later and maybe it's not that important in life to stress that point like i would ask what if someone doesn't learn their time times tables ever like <laughs> by 12th grade or or ever as an adult like Will that be the worst thing to happen in the world? Uh, I I would posit that maybe it's not as big a deal as we make it. But something like, for example, literacy. Does someone need to be literate by their second half of second grade or whatever, or their or their fifth grade, or their tenth grade? Like, give people a long amount of time to learn to read and comprehend things because that's a big thing. The vast majority of people can be literate like within you know by the time they're an adult so it doesn't make sense to have these like batches of like first grade second grade only third grade only and it raises the question like why do we do that and that leads to the whole conundrum of like school reflects and serves the economy and these social norms um so we have to have not because it's a better way not because it makes a lot more sense but we have to have these batches like in first grade and they're all comparing each other on these very specific like reading tasks. And then if you don't do it well in that certain time frame, like you're not smart and you're bad and you might not like to read ever again. And at least if we're going to require people to do things like at least give them like three years to learn to like read a certain book or read in a certain way instead of like one eight week quarter or whatever. 
speaking as someone who did not learn his times tables until uh, embarrassingly late, although maybe the message is that I shouldn't be embarrassed about it, uh, I would defend the institution of the times tables. I think that they're they are worthy and very useful uh, conceptually for a lot of other things. Maybe not as broadly useful as learning to read, but just thinking about math as like another language, uh, it, it's pretty core. But um, to like... To the center of your critique, I think here here's the way that I see the problem, and here is the way that I think Montessori responds to the problem that traditional schools are, are failing to respond to, is that when you have teacher-centered education, it becomes uh, an insurmountable organizational problem when you have students who are all over a spectrum of learning differentiation. But that's always going to be the case. Right, that's just people. That's just people. People are different, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, and so what you should do instead of saying, like, hey, these people are broken because they're not meeting the benchmarks, is say, like, well, wait a minute, maybe our model is wrong. No, it's the children who are wrong. Of trying to, like, assess these benchmarks. It creates an organizational challenge for teachers because, you know, the and speaking as somebody who is also taught in a more traditional classroom, it's really hard to teach a group of fourth graders the material that is that I have for them when you know 10% of them can't read it uh, you know that that requires me to do a lot of modification which I don't mind doing but it's a lot easier in the Montessori method because of uh, one of like the most important features of its structure which is this uh, triangle so the idea of the traditional classroom is that it's a dyad. You have the teacher at the front of the classroom and the students sitting in their rows of desks and the teacher imparts the knowledge into the students. And hopefully the students are able to keep up with that. And if they're not, well, I guess they fail and repeat the grade until they show they can meet the mark. But the Montessori method is that you have, uh, within this three-year cycle, you have a triangle of the teacher, the students, and the classroom resources. And so rather than it being very teacher-centered, uh, you have these various uh, what are called autodidactic materials, uh, which is just a fancy word for this is the material that you use to teach yourself this concept. And so what you do is you group kids by their ability level, you sit down, you have a little lesson with them, you show them the material that explains the concept of why multiplication works rather than just memorizing it, and then on their own, they go off and work on those materials. Uh, you know, maybe on their own, maybe in small groups, however they want to do it. Uh, and they, they use those materials to teach themselves concretely why this works the way that it does. Does the teacher, like, facilitate? Like, does the teacher walk around and, like, help? Doesn't just sit at a desk the whole time. A, a lot of your time in the Montessori classroom is spent pacing around the classroom, observing students, uh, not necessarily trying to be noticed. You don't want to distract them. But if, you know, if one of them is really having trouble, uh, you might intervene. I, ideally, you don't want to intervene unilaterally. You want to wait until they come to you with a question. But like if you see somebody who's really struggling, of course, you know, you can get involved. Uh, but what this does is it makes it so suddenly you are no longer presented with this insurmountable organizational challenge of I have 30 different students at 30 different levels that I have to teach at the same time, because you don't. 
uh, you, you're sending them off to teach themselves and you can meet with them based on where they're at within like uh, this broad um, this broad range uh, of students across three years of development. What comes to mind is like the term the workshop model workshop mm-hmm. is like going to a workshop and it's like like an expert's watching you like do things and they're just like mm-hmm. watching and coming around maybe and helping you with certain stuff. But yeah. um yeah, you know the there's like that line in the Simpsons in the meme, it's Dr. uh Principal Skinner. It's like no no, the children, it's the children who are wrong. Right. Am I out of touch? No. It's the children who are wrong. No. It's the children who are wrong. Right. I thought of that when you said like maybe their model is wrong, maybe what we're doing is wrong, but no, <laughs> no. it's the children who are wrong. It couldn't be. <laughs> but it's, you know, we we say it's wrong because it's wrong if what you're trying to do is uh aid in the emotional and intellectual development of human beings. And as we've discussed many times on the show, that's not necessarily the goal of people who have set these structures for what a school is. Okay, I wasn't planning on this, but I want to go back to the multiplication tables and really like dig into this. First, I want to say like my multiplication tables were learned at some point, but like I really have to think about it now. I'm not great at multiplication tables and okay, sure. I'm not like uh, the greatest role model in life to like look up to and like having all the success in the world. But like, I think I'm okay. Like, you know, I think I'm doing okay. But it brings up the question of like, how wrong is it to not know like certain things? Like, first of all, who decides what should be learned? And when we talk about what levels people are at, like, that's a a concept I really want to dig in because like, when things are like at certain levels and like students are at this level or that level, it supposes that like math is just this one thing to be like achieved. It's like this like big concept and like you just have to get more and more of it into your basket. And like you, mm-hmm. you go up this ladder of the known, you know, rungs on the ladder and knowing math is like going up this, these rungs that other people have already discovered and you just have to like figure it out yourself. And I think, like, the world is not really like that. And to use math as an example, it's like, in higher-level education institutions, aren't you just, like, often unlearning, like, frequently unlearning, like, what you learned in elementary education because it was wrong? Or, like, mm-hmm. if not if not unlearning, then you realize, like, it was only correct in a certain context or whatever, or you're relearning it in a certain way. It brings me to another question, I guess. I'm just rambling and thinking, but let's say, um, what is 8 times 8? 64, right? Okay, I know that. Mm -hmm. What happens? Okay, I'm wrong if I I say 8 times 8 is like 50. Okay, I'm wrong. But what happens if a third grader like is wrong about that? Okay? So I think an important question in an educational context is not just like what people know or what they're supposed to know, but like especially as it relates to conventional schooling and contrasted with Montessori schooling, what happens to the person, to the student, if they don't know it at that certain time, right? Let's assume that you need to know 8 times 8 is 64. Okay, let's assume that's good, it's true, and you need to know it. What happens to the student in the ninth week of second grade in the traditional classroom if they don't know it? And the answer is they get punished. And that doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't make them better mathematicians it doesn't make them know it (laughs) it doesn't make them know it they might 
now be even less likely to know it in the future because you like discourage them at that moment and like call them stupid. Right. They they have now associated their struggles with math uh, with this bad feeling associated with like being punished or getting a bad grade. Right. So assuming there's like certain material that people need to know, um, an important question is how Montessori deals with it versus conventional schooling deals with it is very different. Montessori sees struggle with learning and knowledge and other people as part of the learning process that is to be welcomed and encouraged Mm -hmm. and supported. Whereas conventional education will see that as a simple failure. You like failed this certain step at this certain time and you're going to be punished in some way. You're going to be demoted, um, deranked. You're going to like be made fun of, be taunted. Like even if it's not explicit, you're going to you know, you're not smart, you're not a mathematician, and that's that. So, like, dealing with the struggle of learning is a very different way of dealing with things in the Montessori classroom versus the conventional classroom. Yes. That's actually, that's a perfect uh, point to um, bring up another thing that I really liked in uh, this, this school that I taught at for five years, the private school, which is that we really encouraged... Um, you know, so we've talked about how there were no grades. Well, so what do we do for assignments when kids got something wrong? Uh, you know, when they wrote down that eight times eight is 50 or whatever. Well, what we did is on basically all of the work that the kids did. So we talked about how like you present the lesson to them and they go work on it autonomously and come find you if they need help or you come find them if they obviously need help. Well, when they're done with it, when they've completed the assignment, Uh, They bring it to the teachers and they put it in our little basket and we go through and we make revisions on things. So we notice that, um, okay, you you had uh, eight times eight as 50 here. So I'm going to underline that and then I'm going to give it back to you and you can see if you can figure out what the mistake you made was and correct it. Uh, And that ends when it's all done when it's all finished and correct. So we can go back and forth as many times as that takes. If they start to get frustrated, I might get more involved in trying to support them and figuring out you know, where, where their error is. Um, and something that we said often to, uh, especially to the kids who, who maybe had imbibed that uh, conventional schooling idea of to be really smart means to get 100% the first time, is that if the work that you are doing doesn't come back with any revisions on it, you probably aren't challenging yourself enough. You're probably doing work that's too easy for you. Yeah, and you might not even be learning. You might just be like copying something. You're probably not. You're probably not learning very much. You're not learning nearly as much as the kid who's, you know, really struggling through, uh, you know, his math difficulties, uh, you know, going back and forth seven times on this set of problems or whatever. Um, And, uh, yeah, just that it's it's normal it's normal to get things wrong. It's normal to fail the first few times you try something. Uh, so we you know we really tried to normalize that concept uh, and you know down to being really open about when we as teachers made a mistake on something. Um, you know I I <laughs> I will never forget uh, something that one of uh, a professor who observed me when I was doing a lesson in clinicals said uh, he was like one of the, this thing that you did that um, 
people usually don't do when they're in student teaching or clinicals is a student asks you a question and you said, I don't know. Um, and I, I didn't think anything of it because I've, I've just always taught that way. Uh, but he said that a lot of teachers feel this pressure to be the authority, you know, to have all the knowledge about everything. And if they don't know something, they'll kind of make it up on the spot. Mm -hmm. So we really tried to get away with, from that and just be upfront about how everybody has things they're working on. Everyone has things that are uh, more difficult or easier for them. Uh, the point is to try to to try to find that sweet spot for yourself where you're being challenged, but it's not so unbelievably frustrating that you just give up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hate that. I was taught in like, you know, teacher education school and as a student teacher, you know, if you don't know something, like don't let the students know that you don't know. You gotta <laughs> present yourself as an expert and you can't never like, you know, not know something. This concept, by the way, and this is maybe a topic for another podcast, is getting rebranded as grit. I don't know if you are familiar with the term grit in education. Oh, yeah, I hate it. Um, but it's awful, uh, and they they don't understand anything, and they're they're really trying to take this like pretty basic concept of like it's okay to try and fail an experiment and turn it into uh, I don't know <laughs> like something really awful and uh, TED talky. For sure, we'll talk about that on its own episode in the future. But the one word I did not like when I was reading the Montessori like stuff earlier in the intro is one word was there rigorous. And I hate that Rigorous. word because it kind of means something similar. But um, yeah, that leads into like later in our talk, um, a discussion of like what's wrong still with Montessori and like what creeps in and why. And that's like, I think part of like, you know, the, the real world or, you know, our social and economic norms, it means you got to like be productive and do your job really well in the workplace. And that sort of mentality creeps in and, uh, yeah, we got to have a rigorous, productive like education, which means good. Um, <clears throat> and I think that's wrong. But uh, yeah, another thing I want to just touch on real quick and maybe come back to later is you mentioned, so if a student gets something wrong and they like might bring it to the teacher and the teacher will underline it and be like, you know, you got to rethink this or whatever. And the student goes back, mm -hmm. might work on it on their on their own, maybe with the teacher's help, maybe not. It sounded like you're creating these like scientific minded, like detective thinking, you know, students, which seems like what education should be, you know, philosophically. Yeah. Um, but also it seems like it threatens the uh, current power structure and like economic system and leads us into a conversation in a bit of what is wrong and like why this model, even though it seems so much better to like probably almost anyone listening to this. Like, why is this not the norm in our schools? Mm -hmm. And maybe actually it does have something to do with that. Just that you don't want um, scientific minded detectives like going around changing the world in a good way because right. that threatens the people in power who in turn create the policies and structures and stuff like that. So before the break, I do want to, there's one more thing. Um, a lot of what we're talking about here in the Montessori classroom, that's better is the is relates to the environment that we're creating and what the environment does that helps people learn better is it helps people be motivated and motivation helps you learn now and it also helps you keep learning into the future right and the conventional model is really good at demotivating students right now and also into the future so they don't want to learn anymore right and one of the 
main benefits, I think, of the Montessori approach is that you're creating an environment. And this is like in the mission statement, the philosophy of Montessori. It's like we believe that students are able to like do stuff on their own and in groups and together and work stuff out. And we believe that people are like naturally able um, to solve problems and get better at things. And we think that people are naturally curious and are able to act on that in certain conditions and can be helped along in that process. And um, I have this uh, Albert Einstein quote right here. Behind every achievement exists the motivation, which is at the foundation of it. So that's a pretty big statement. I was once reading a talk, I believe, that Albert Einstein was giving on the topic of education, and that is from that talk. I'm going to read that again. Behind every achievement exists the motivation, which is at the foundation of it. So motivation is very important for like being able to do stuff right now and continuing to do stuff in the future and learn in the future. And when you have a school model, an educational approach that nurtures people's motivation that they already have, then you're going to have a better education model. And when you have an education model that is constantly punishing people for doing stuff wrong and being, you know, lesser, and also on the flip side of that, uh, rewarding people for like their, for their very like temporary achievements. Like if you reward someone on these trivial achievements over and over again, they also learn that you should learn to do trivial things for a reward when the reward is present. That's a whole nother yeah. like episode that we have to go into educational psychology, but the conventional model also like falsely motivates people in a bad way by a punishing people like all the time for like trivial stuff that most of the time doesn't even matter. And also rewarding people for trivial stuff all the time that doesn't even matter that much to them. And I find that the Montessori model is based on a more sound philosophical and psychological, you know, scientific model of motivation. And that is one reason why I like it. And I think it's more effective. One of the things that we talked about a lot at these schools is um, harnessing children's innate love of learning, uh, which is true that, I mean, just human beings want to figure out (laughs) the world around us uh, and that, uh, you know, learning should be fun it should be enjoyable and um that so how do you um how do you like design a school around that concept well we know some things to avoid uh you know we know about how like tests and grades and uh you know all these very rigid benchmarks can sort of throw cold water on uh the experience of learning um I think one of the things that we tried to, uh, you know, that we tried to establish was that it's okay for, um, it is both okay and positive for students to be social while they're learning, uh, that a big part of what develops that internal motivation is sort of this sense of community of that, you know, I like the people that I'm around, they are also engaged in learning, um, I might be interested in some of the things that they're doing, I might be impressed by some of the things that the older students are doing, uh, and I might want to help the younger students with some of the things that I remember doing. Uh, and I but I gotta say, like this, this works pretty well when you can get it going. And every public school or conventional school, you know, private school, doesn't matter, public, private charter, Conventional traditional school in their mission statement says we're going to nourish, you know, the students level learning blah 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 to create curious critical creative thinkers blah 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 
right? Every mission statement, every school, every teacher says that. But the difference mm-hmm. here is you said it. You have to design the school and classroom to be congruent with that. You can't just say that in your mission yeah. statement and say that like you believe it, and then that's what happens. No, <laughs> you have to create an environment, and you have to have pedagogy that is consistent with that. And like you said, like we collectively, humanity, scientific community, educational you know, thinkers, and so on, know a lot of things to do and a lot of things not to do, but the structure frequently, consistently stands in the way of us changing the environment and like redesigning the environment and the pedagogical methods and so on to be more consist- consistent and congruent with what we know is more helpful towards learning mm-hmm. and developing like love of learning. education in dystopia the podcast we were just talking about montessori education and contrasting it with conventional schooling and we had a lot of good things to say about montessori the educational approach and the philosophy and i would also like to say well nothing's like as perfect as we want it in reality i guess and uh what is bad or lacking about montessori uh, as an educational approach how does it also differ in practice with you know its stated goals because we know that conventional or traditional schooling says all that stuff like we're here to create lifelong you know learners of you know creative and curiosity and critical thinking and all that stuff so Montessori has a lot of good to say it does a lot of those things but I guess the question I have now and we could start talking about is where does it fall short so one of my big revelations about school and why it is the way it is is that it's it reflects and serves these social and economic norms. And that is often what is meant by um, preparing students for the real world is preparing them for the social and economic norms. So Montessori is situated, you know, in our society, in our economy, and it can't completely escape that, you know, even though it is a sort of isolated classroom with the walls around it, you can't like escape the culture we're in, the economy you're in, at least not completely. So I'd posit that Montessori does not completely escape that, the social and economic norms, the bad ones that we don't like and want to produce in education. And I'm sure you'll have something to say about that. And uh, also, I'm betting that the Montessori philosophy or approach itself also probably has some things that aren't as good, or it would be missing some things. So it's not that Montessori 
is bad. And it's also not that it's all good. It's that I think it's a better model and something to learn from. So the way that I always thought about it was that there are a lot of different types of learners out there. And having taught in Montessori schools and more traditional schools, my observation was that the Montessori method worked for a, a wider, a much wider range of different learner types than the more traditional schools. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it worked for everyone. And I have students that I could say uh, it really didn't work for. And some of them, you know, I could I could go into the details of saying like, well, here's what I thought didn't work for this kid. Some of them I, I still don't know. I, I don't really know what went wrong. Um, I think a lot of that is like you you sort of have out at the level of individual students, um, ideally in conversation between uh, the teachers, the parents, and sometimes even the student themselves, if that seems like a productive way to do it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's not perfect. It's not for everybody. Um, I think that some, there's some students out there who really struggle with, uh, with the fact that it's less structured. Uh, there are some students and, you know, maybe it would have been different for them if they had uh, gone through Montessori from the beginning. Maybe it's something about the way that parenting happens at home. Uh, who knows? Uh, but I've definitely seen kids who really kind of flail in that environment where uh, they don't have somebody standing over them telling them what to do each step at a time. Uh, and I, it's it's not that I necessarily think that, you know, they're going to turn out great if they do get that because that's kind of a, you know, I, I think if that's the way that you're approaching education, you're going to have problems later in life, you know, because your your whole life can't be like that. Uh, but I, I did see that a number of times of just students who struggled with uh, what could be called a lack of structure. Okay. So I, I do want to dig in and look at students who specifically were having problems and talk about what you think might have helped them. Um, but real quick, I want to say with regards to structure and like having needing steps, like needing to be told what to do all the time. Uh, one of the best lines I ever heard on this topic uh, was Alfie Cohn. He said, that's not a learning style. Like we, we, we think that's a learning style and we're told that's like a learning style to like need someone to tell you what to do all the time. But uh, he said, that's not a learning style. That's a problem to be solved. So why does a person need to be told to do all the time? And you brought up a part of why I think that might be the case, which is things that are going on at home, things that are going yeah. on outside the school. Again, we live in a society and economy in which we are told that we, first of all, we're told that we need to be told all the time, you know, what to do. We're told like, this is how it works. You actually have to like do it this way in a certain kind of, you know, step fashion. You have to like copy the authority. So we're told that that's how it works. And then we try to like, we try to do that for ourselves. Like, like if I think, if I think it work, learning works and like the world works where I have to like do it like the teacher wants it, I'm going to like wait for the teacher all the time. It's not necessarily a learning style like that. I will necessarily need that to learn better it's a way of me internalizing like what the world has told me how I should learn. So that's one example of that. Yeah. So I, I wanted to point that out. Um, a lot of things that we think are learning styles 
are not necessarily learning styles. They are reflections of how we're told things need to work, how things are operating outside the school, which is, remember, at least half of the day. Um, Mm -hmm. And then if you have parents and guardians who have the authority, even more authority than the schools, and, you know, they're in turn um, affecting, you know, kids in certain ways. You know, what if that student at home has a very strict parent? And the reason they have this, you know, so-called learning style at school, this is one example, um, is because at home they have to wait for the, you know, authority, for their parent to tell them exactly what to do. These are just examples. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. So, you know, maybe that's not even um, the right way to describe the problem because it's more like... uh, like we're imputing this need on the students based on what we see as a failure to thrive in the environment that we've constructed. And some of that could be because of things that we as the teachers are not doing to you know, meet that student's needs. Some of it could certainly be things that the parents are doing or not doing uh, that are causing them to um, you know, be in this situation where I like specifically what I'm thinking of is students who never really developed that internal motivation that we're talking about students who just like, you know, for three years, just never really seemed to get interested in school or their peers or, you know, any of the things that we're doing. Uh, and I've, I've certainly spent, you know, many sleepless nights puzzling about like what, like how to solve that problem. Uh, and there are times that I've done it and times that I haven't been able to do it. Uh, but it, like, yeah, maybe, maybe that's a problem with like the Montessori method more generally. Maybe it was a combination of other factors going on in their lives that we as teachers didn't have control over. Maybe it was some mistake we as the teachers were making that we didn't recognize. I don't know. Now, let me say this and critique from a direction that might not be expected based on what I said so far in this episode and previous episodes, but I I will critique Montessori and say it is possible to be too hands-off. I actually do believe you can be too hands-off. Oh, 100%. And I would suggest that sometimes, and possibly, I don't know, perhaps in the philosophy and approach of Montessori, maybe it is not optimal in terms of how, you know, hands-on or facilitating the teacher is. Yeah, I think that could be the case. Uh, Some of the things that I wondered about was whether Montessori had really uh, kept with the times as far as some of the very common learning differences that we see as teachers nowadays. I mean, I'm not... um, What's the name of that thing? Uh, There's like a term for... It's like survivor bias... You know the thing that I'm talking about where, like, it's the diagram of uh, the planes with all the bullet holes in them? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Okay, you you can cut this out because okay. this is just me trying to remember what that's called, but... Um, I might, maybe I won't. <laughs> what, what I'm trying to say is that I don't think that things like ADHD and autism are new phenomenon. Um, I think that the way that we deal with them is new, uh, and I, I definitely had occasion to wonder whether Montessori had kept with the times in in terms of like reevaluating the way that we approach uh, students with some of these particular learning differences that like a lot more 
uh, that are that are a lot better understood now than they were, you know, in the 1930s. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, and uh, you know, it is the case that Maria Montessori um, is a part of her claim to fame was that she took over a school of kids who would be considered special education students by you know like today's terms and uh you know that basically like the the government had given up on and said these kids suck they can't learn anything and she was able to produce some like pretty good outcomes just by uh changing their environment um but yeah it like may uh, again this is just something that i always have questions about like maybe the issue was that our pedagogy wasn't working for those kids maybe the issue is that we were a private school and as a result like didn't have uh the same special ed resources that a public school should have doesn't always um i don't know it's pretty hard to do worse than conventional schools at <laughs> like helping people with learning disabilities and differences yeah so i would suggest maybe montessori while it's not perfectly what we want it's probably better uh, as a model. Yeah, we did. I mean, we certainly had kids who had learning differences, you know, like diagnosable stuff uh, that were able to um, that were able to function. Actually, the, <laughs> this is another thing that I really liked about it. We're like seen by their peers as quote unquote normal, you know, like it uh, it, it wasn't like. Um, yeah, like they 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 were not ostracized by the fact that they had Aspergers or something. Uh, but at the same time, there were also kids who were like super ADHD who who couldn't hack it, and their parents pulled them out of the school because uh, they they didn't feel like they they correctly didn't feel like they were getting what they needed. And I don't know if they got what they needed in public school or wherever they took them after that. But I do know that we failed to give that kid what what mm -hmm. um, they needed. Let's go back to that example of the math problem. So the student who does 8 times 8 and gets 50 and takes mm -hmm. it to the teacher and the teacher underlines it. And wh what do they say? They say, um, do they say it's wrong and you just need to work this out again? You could say that. So, okay. So if this is what happens in like a typical Montessori classroom, let's say, I might have a problem with that because I think for some things, for some people, that is a good way to do things. Like you're... Helping people develop their like creative, collaborative powers um, and capacities, and you're like you're you're putting the onus on the students to like figure stuff out. Now, I will say there is so for some people in some situations that won't work so well because it's not necessarily they need more structure. I wouldn't call it that, especially because of how often uh, structure is misused. And I did an episode. I believe the last episode was a monologue about that. But I would say some people need to have it worked through with the teacher, right? So if the teacher's not like helping them figure it out and just saying, go off on your own and figure it out, that could work for some people sometimes on some things. But sometimes, you know, some people will need a teacher to like go through the thought process with them, illustrate things Definitely. for them, uh, have a model, uh, have a certain reading that will help them or whatever it is. Again, the teacher can be a little more hands-on as a facilitator. And I would, my hunch is talking to you and reading about Montessori, this is potentially an area of weakness in Montessori. I think that at least in my experience, I think that we did pretty well at it. And the reason that we're able to do well at it was because we knew the students really well, because we had them for up to three years at a time. 
uh, a lot of the physical materials that you use, especially for math, which is something that I, I really think that a lot of the difficulties that students have in math are based on the fact that we teach it as an abstract concept too early. Uh, and Montessori really sticks with concrete materials that demonstrate how the process works, um, you know, clear up through double digit long division. Um, so yeah, so that, that could be the case that, uh, you know, a student hands in work and maybe you don't even say anything at all. You just hand it back and like these digits are underlined. So, you know, you got it wrong and you're frustrated and you don't understand. Um, and it's a bad experience for you. But, you know, because of the fact that the teachers are still keeping track of that individual work, you know, like if you just give up on it, we're going to notice and we're going to wonder why you gave up on it. Uh, if you are continually turning it back in with the wrong answers, we're going to notice that as well. Um, so I, I think that we have a lot of methods to be able to, uh, you know, for teachers to be able to assess where are students at and why they are where they are at so we can do the appropriate interventions. Uh, that doesn't mean that we never get it wrong, uh, but I, I would say that, like, to me, I don't think that that is a flaw in uh, the teaching model. I think that when that happens, it's more user error. Alfie Cohen said, or maybe he was quoting someone, I don't remember exactly, but he said, schools overestimate students academically and underestimate students intellectually. And I've thought about that kind of a lot. And hmm. I think that describes, I mean, specifically, like if you look at math in conventional schools and what you said about teaching math as an abstract concept too early, that is a case of overestimating them academically, but it's also underestimating them intellectually because it's like assuming that they can't figure things out, like given concrete support and like figure out the concepts. So it's like in school, you're telling the students in conventional school, you're saying like, memorize these numbers, right? And sometimes like it's a daunting task, like whatever you're being asked to do, but it's also not understanding the concept. Um, so you're like, you're saying like, okay, they're not ready to like be creative and understand the concept and do higher order thinking with math, right? That's why we're giving them this abstract stuff so early, um, which becomes the academically, you know, daunting task. And I was thinking... Montessori does a better job um, than conventional schooling of getting that balance more correct is like respecting yeah. the student and like not underestimating their like abilities to figure things out. Um, and that's like a part of what you're doing. But one problem that may still be happening sometimes is overestimating, overestimating them academically. But you're saying also that like if that's happening where you're giving them academically like too difficult stuff the teachers will notice and make corrections. So that's good. Mm -hmm. So I would suggest some things that are wrong about Montessori in the model and in the classroom are things that aren't necessarily wrong about Montessori. They're again, like reflections and echoes of like things from outside the classroom. And yeah, I guess I wanted to ask you real quick. It's a broad topic of course, but like how does, um, how does our economy, you know, how does capitalism and our social norms and the competitive world that we live in, uh, the, the cutthroat, you know, American ideology and culture, how do these seep into Montessori classrooms? Because maybe that's not something that can be fixed, uh, you know, by fixing Montessori per se. It's not like something you could just improve about Montessori. 
it's something that like you'd have to like change about the world outside the classroom before anything you know that that stuff would seep into uh waldorf schools or home schools or conventional schools or mm-hmm. whatever it is yeah i mean let's back up a little bit and think about the context in which the montessori method was developed um Maria Montessori, peace education is a really important part of Montessori, uh, or it's supposed to be anyway. And this came out of the fact that Maria Montessori's specific vision was that uh, there is a revolution occurring in the sciences uh, and that we should take a scientific approach to education. And that her goal was to take this scientific approach, asking the question, how can we produce how can we produce generations of students who will not repeat the horrors of World War I? Uh, and then she ended up running the schools under Mussolini. <laughs> uh, so, you know, like, um, and depending on, uh, this, this is where the history gets a little bit more murky uh, because she is certainly a very valorized figure, uh, almost like to a cultish degree by people who are into Montessori. She did run the schools under Mussolini and then purportedly uh, because like as fascism developed in Italy became so appalled by it that she essentially fled the country. There was some incident where he was demanding that all teachers take a fascist loyalty oath and she wouldn't instruct her teachers to do that. Um, but anyway, so this is the, this is like what, um, like the DNA of this schooling system is, is how do we produce how do we produce human beings that will create a more peaceful world? Um, and what, so then, and my question is like, okay, so that is what Maria Montessori wanted to do almost a hundred years ago. What are Montessori schools doing now? And I would say not that. Uh, I have taught in two different Montessori schools, one of them public, one of them private. The private one I most of those kids are going to just go on to be like professional managerial class, like, you know, like white collar, highly educated workers. Um, Something I thought was really telling, uh, which speaks also to the way that this school has changed in the time uh, from when I was attending as a student and when I was teaching there, Uh, they did a parent survey about why are you um, why are you sending your kid here? Uh, and the most popular response was because it's the best school in town. <laughs> uh, that that way outperformed because I believe in the Montessori method, you know, because I, I think this is like a better method of teaching. It was because it was the best school in town. And I think that that also reflects the fact that uh, since the time that I attended that school, the tuition price had more than doubled. So most of the people who are sending their kids there were those same, you know, upper middle class or wealthier professional managerial types uh, who uh, wanted their kids to learn so they can be like, you know, effective, uh, the, the, the kind of highly compensated, highly educated worker who is uh, trusted with more autonomous work because they do not have a role uh, where there is any kind of like lateral solidarity they can appeal to uh, to build power uh, to push back against the designs of the ruling class. Uh, so, th- you know, like at that school, that's who I think I was training. I don't think I was training 
people who are going to go out and produce world peace. I think I was training, you know, a generation of like academics and office workers. Um, so you were preparing them for the real world. The, the I was real preparing world that them for we're the trying real world. to change and like not, you know, yes. prepare students for because it's bad. I think that I think that um, I think that Montessori has potential, uh, like if it were more widely available, uh, to you know sort of return to those uh, like anti-war aims of Maria Montessori, but. When I look at the public school where I uh, taught Montessori, so it had this Montessori magnet designation. And originally the school, before it became the Montessori magnet, uh, was um, 90-some percent uh, black and Latino students, uh, most of them getting uh, like free or reduced-cost lunches, which is the metric that schools use to decide whether you're quote-unquote poor. Uh, so that was most of the kids who went to the school. Once it got this magnet designation, all of a sudden those same upper middle class or richer parents, uh, mostly white parents, homed in on that resource and started to displace all of those kids. You know, they had the resources, they had the know-how to figure out how to hack this magnet lottery system to the point that um, the demographics of the school just skewed wildly in the decade or so that it had this designation to the point that um, it was, um, I, I think, one of the richest schools in in the district. So it's like even when you do create a node of like purportedly like public Montessori, it gets colonized by these same people who just want to like you know crank out their own. Uh, PMC children. Uh, so and uh, like I, I don't I don't know what the solution to that is other than to make it so widespread that it's going beyond uh, like that that um, the the deputized slice of labor that is the middle class in this country. Um, but it, it was pretty disappointing to see it turn out like that. You know the the story of progressive education as a tradition and philosophy and approach is kind of similar and a lot of the progressive educators uh were you know into montessori education uh montessori education is like um like a segment of some of the uh, progressive educators uh for example and yeah that was part of our critique on an earlier episode of progressive education as a tradition or approach um and even you know john dewey said for us to have like a democratic society, we have to have democratic schools and vice versa. Like for us to have democratic schools, we have to have a democratic society. And these are like good criticisms and ideas, but like the idea that we can make the world a better place by having like a certain subdivision of a subdivision, perhaps of education. Um, it doesn't work like that. Right. And that's part of the, the flaw or fallacy of the progressive educators, they thought they could like build a certain like little enclave and have the right ideas about education and that would, you know, just grow and spread and that would change the world. And it's not that it hasn't changed anything for anyone. Just like Montessori schools have surely like made the world a better place in some small way or for some person here or there. Um and we can't like just dismiss that or forget about it completely, but if you want to change the world, 
you can't just start in the schools and work outward, right? A better kind of education in a better kind of classroom is like a necessary but insufficient piece of what would make up a better world. And no education model, I think, can just make the world a better place broadly, but it's still like worth thinking about and acting towards. Yeah, they would it would it would have to be if if we are trying to, you know, like going back to Montessori's example, if we are trying to produce world peace through education, number one, that kind of education needs to be universalized. It can't just be for a select few who are going to be like the vanguard of managers that institutes world peace from above. Uh, that's it's it's got to come from below or it's not going to come at all. Um, but the second thing is that there needs to be there needs to be something waiting for them on the other side of the doors to the schools that they can take that knowledge and and uh, integrate it into plug it into. Um, And it's not that, you know, like I I think that um, my hope would be in this, in this, you know, circumstance where we absolutely don't have that, where everything in our society is about ensuring that uh, nothing fundamentally changes as we slowly grind toward extinction. Um, You know, I would hope that, yeah, if you instituted a universalized educational system based on, uh, world peace or, you know, ecological wisdom uh, or, you know, uh, promoting uh, social equity and racial justice that what you would eventually end up with is these generations that are coming out of the schools into the quote unquote real world and saying, hey, we have to do something about this and organizing to change it. Um, but there's still, you know, like before that happens, uh, there's there's going to be a lot of negative influence from that nothing will fundamentally change way of structuring society that's going to affect the experience of the students in the schools. They are not just like cordoned off from reality because, you know, they're inside a school building for six hours out of the day. Well, I would posit that the people in power who make the major decisions, including for schools and school systems, don't want world peace necessarily. No, they sure don't. Uh, so if they're <laughs> the people who are in charge and are going to institute this kind of universal education for world peace or whatever it is, um, that's not going to happen, right? Because they don't want that to happen. Yeah, it's not going to happen unless we uh, we either make them do it or much more likely get rid of them completely so that we can do it. Ooh, spicy. <laughs> Through the ballot box or what? <laughs> Uh, I was thinking banning them in Minecraft. <laughs> oh, shit. That's harsh. <laughs> they can rejoin the server when they've self-critted. I was listening to a podcast episode lately, and it was about how all landlords are bastards. And mm-hmm. uh, a really good metaphor was, like, they're, they're talking about how, like, oh, you can't just say, like, you know, all landlords are bastards, like, landlord's a person right like my friend or like uncle is a landlord and he's a good guy and they're help- and they made this uh metaphor is like um everyone has like this mecho mechazoid suit that they put on and it's like their function in society and then under underneath that it's funny they say is a uh, soft pink consciousness uh <laughs> the person you know, is like the, their soul or whatever you know 
Um, and it's it's the Mecho Mechazoid suit that's the bastard, and you know needs to be like banned from society or whatever, and removed from their position. But sure, once they take off that Mechazoid suit, sure they're not bastards anymore, and they can be you know humans with all the human rights and stuff. Yeah, then we can hang out. Yeah, no problem with them. So yeah, I would suggest that like the people like stopping us from having these better schools, like we need to somehow find a way to like get rid of their Mechazoid suits. And then, then they can integrate back, and you know, things can be all good. Yeah, it's uh, they would have a good time too. That's the thing. What? They they would have a good time if they took off the suit and hung out with everybody else. Oh yeah, it's probably lonely, like being in your tower, just like <laughs> you know, ruining people's lives. And I don't know. That seems like it sucks. Yeah, that's like. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's fun. Part of the critique, like part of the thing about being the oppressor in whatever suit they're wearing is like, it also like makes their life suck in ways that they don't like yep. realize. And then when they do take off the suit, they're like, oh shit, I was a bastard. <laughs> but yeah, uh, shout out to that podcast and episode is great. Uh, seriously wrong. All Lords are Bastards. Go check it out. Highly recommended. <laughs>